This week I'm talking with Dr. Dawn Sparks. Dr. Sparks runs a pain practice on the island of Kauai, where she's one of only two pain physicians on the whole island. She shares her career journey, which encompasses a brief stint in academics, doing some locums work and other medical entrepreneurship before finally launching her own practice a few years ago. She also shares a story of a really bad car accident she had when she was a teenager and how that experience that she had as a patient undergoing and recovering from that treatment continues to this day to shape her deeply held conviction around empathetic care. As always, thanks for tuning in this week. Hello and welcome to episode 96 of APM Success. I'm very pleased to be joined today by a special guest, Dr. Don Sparks. Dr. Sparks is an anesthesia-trained interventional pain physician out in Hawaii. So it's 3 p.m. here on the East Coast, and I guess she's probably drinking her morning coffee. Dr. Sparks, thanks for joining us today. Cheers. Hey, there it is. <laughs> Hi, how's it doing, Harvey? Thanks for having me on here. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm so pleased to be speaking with you. There's a lot of interesting stuff I wanna cover. And when we spoke the other day uh, in preparation for this conversation, a lot of little nuggets popped up, uh, a lot of good things to discuss. And the one that really piqued my interest was talking about NASA eligibility for yes. you. So tell, yeah. me a, tell me a little bit about that. So uh, this was like pre-pandemic actually, before the world had actually shut down, but I guess there was, um, things going on that we were hearing about coronavirus and that there was this stuff going on in, you know, Italy and China and so on and so forth. So it was definitely started, but it was like the beginning of March. And I just was kind of pondering, like, I wonder, I've wanted to be a doctor since I was four. So I wonder what else would I do if I wasn't a doctor and what was the thing that I wanted as like a child. And so it kind of took me back to, I went to space camp as a, young adult. And, um, and my parents said that that was too expensive. I couldn't go. And I used my artistic skills and entered a local art project of drawing the downtown square that had been recently redone. And I won $350, which guess what, back in 1989, that was enough to go to space camp. And and um, so, so on went my space expedition of studying for that exam and on the plane all the way to Huntsville, Alabama, and then the night before taking the test. Um, so I tested high enough to become the commander of the discovery mission back then. And so I think that was just kind of my um, part with NASA and wanting to go to outer space and wanting to do something else. And so I always wanted to be a doctor, but like the other thing I, was interested in was definitely space exploration and the um, whole entire space shuttle program and everything about it. And like, much like a lot of anesthesiologists who learn how to become pilots or get really into photography, we are definitely into gadgets. So um, that was just kind of a natural thing of learning all of the, the physics and the mechanics and stuff like that related to the space shuttle, even at that young age. So I was laying in bed <laughs> pre-pandemic and I thought, huh, I wonder what it takes to be an astronaut. And I Googled, <laughs> now that that's really a verb in the dictionary now, I Googled and said, uh, what does it take to apply to be an astronaut? And up popped, first hit was like usajobs.gov. And I clicked on it and I started reading the qualifications and apparently being a doctor, 
who is willing to learn a different language and scuba dives and has all these other like prerequisites is um, the ability to apply to be an astronaut was there. So I just decided, well, I might as well try it. I mean, my daughter's grown. Um, I've kind of done all kinds of different things and had different jobs in medicine. And I thought, well, you miss a thousand percent of the chances you don't take. So I'm going to throw my hat in the ring. And as you know, like pretty much two weeks later, the entire world shut down, um, <laughs> which was like, well, you know, this could be like my whole quarantine, getting me ready to be in the space station, being alone, you know. So it kind of seemed natural. So what, what is the process like from here? Um, so there was a couple different processes of, of online applications and then um, an online psychiatric evaluation, which I passed. Um, so, so now I believe the next step would be an in-person interview in Houston. And we're just been waiting for there to be safe and vaccinations and all that other stuff. So, you know, I've gotten a few emails that, um, they're, you know, they're sorry about the delay. The astronaut program was supposed to begin in July of 2021. And now they're thinking more like sometime in 2022, which was the most recent email I received. So got it. it's just kind of been delayed. Do you have a favorite space movie? Um, well, I love the movie Space Camp. Like I used to say that all the time, sitting in my backyard, looking up at the sky at the stars, and I would say, I'm going up. I am. I'll have to put that one on my list. Mm -hmm. My wife and I good. like Interstellar as one of our faves. Oh, that's a really good one too. Contact's another pretty cool one. Um, yeah, there's a lot of good movies. So tell us what your current mm -hmm. clinical practice looks like there in Hawaii. So my current clinical pain practice. Um, I actually also just pivoted and started a uh, lab as well. So um, I have both the pain practice and the lab here in Kauai. And that was more of just keeping our bubble safe. We've really had low numbers of coronavirus here in Kauai. And so I wanted there to be testing and access to testing and the county and the um, tourism department had decided that they wanted to allow there to be an incentive for tourists who would come here with a negative test, even if they were vaccinated, to be able to get another test three days after arrival in order to um, further their negative status and get an incentive card for discounts all over the place for clothes and, you know, um, tourist activities and eating out and doing things like that. So I actually have that in my office as well for patients that want to get the COVID testing. Um, and my pain practice is pretty much like a lot of people's pain practices. I see patients um, in the office, new patients, follow-ups, med refills, things of that nature. And then of course, um, I do interventional pain management is the forte and um, getting more and more excited about all the different opportunities we have because pain's pretty much a a new field still. I mean, since 1990, 1991, um, we kind of became our own little niche and um, have been furthering ourselves with the amount of things that we can do. And I think that's super exciting. I think it's an exciting time to be a pain doctor and the ability to learn how to do minimally invasive lumbar decompressions or really advanced spinal cord stimulation. Um, so neuromodulation is super duper exciting to me. And 
how that, who knows, that may fit in with like, you know, the Elon Musk Neuralink program, or it might fit in with SpaceX. I mean, AI, like who knows where this could end up? I think it's really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Elon Musk, gosh, he's doing so many interesting things. You might have a better chance of being a, a private astronaut as a SpaceX employee than a, a NASA one, who knows? I mean, I'd go either way. I mean, Elon and I already share a birthday, so um, go June 28th and, um, <laughs> Um, you know, who knows? I mean, I, I'm not opposed to getting up to space in any way. <laughs> Richard Branson, I mean, you know, whatever. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Jeff Bezos, I mean, there's a lot of options now, I feel like. Uh, if, you know, there's uh, probably most of the physicians listening to this podcast are here on the mainland with me. So take a minute and describe what kind of, you know, what's unique about practicing in Hawaii or Kauai? And uh, are there like cultural differences or Anything that makes like clinical differences or patient population, payer mix, like how is it different where you practice? Well, definitely cultural differences and payer mixes difference too. Um, I think that overall Kauai and Hawaii have um, way out here in the Pacific Ocean. We didn't have a lot of access to a lot of things of that nature. And so when... I first moved here in 2015, I was working for someone else. And then I subsequently started my own practice. Um, and prior to that, um, they weren't doing any nevro in Hawaii at all, or HF10 high frequency. And so I was hearing, and, and of course, my mentor from way back at the Cleveland Clinic, Leo Capral had written a bunch of stuff and, and I'd been talking to him about it and like the data looked good. And I really wanted, I was like, I want to try this nevro i want to try this high frequency i want to give it a shot um especially for its, its data to low back pain and as you know that's the most frequent visit that a patient makes to any doctor so i started looking at that information and why isn't it in hawaii why isn't it here why haven't we brought it here and i really kind of just started networking at my local meetings and trying to figure out how to get it to hawaii Kauai specifically, and ended up subsequently doing the first um, trial and implant for uh, a high frequency system here. And that opened a lot of doors, I think, because then people who had thought that opiates or physical therapy were their only option now knew of this new technology. And then the more I did, the more I saw how life-changing it could be for for patients. Now, mind you, I was already using um, other companies that were here on Hawaii. So it just, it just gave another opportunity, right? And the same thing as we start to see all of these um, uh, sacral spacers or, uh, you know, others, lumbar middle, um, decompression, you know, to be able to do that to the population who's never had it as an opportunity or an option is really fantastic because they're super thankful and they're super grateful to have their pain relieved. Sure. Are there, is there a difference in like physicians per capita or pain management docs per capita in a place like Hawaii, just cause it's a little more insulated? Um, actually there's quite a few pain management doctors on Oahu, which is the Island with the most population, which is where Honolulu is. Um, I was the only pain physician here for quite a while until I left and opened my other practice. And now there's two of us. Um, 
And there's some islands that don't have like a designated pain physician. Um, and a lot of the inner island flights uh, have pretty much opened back up and we're getting back to being able to kind of move around more. But I do know from a private practice standpoint that Hawaii is one of the states that has the highest um, percentage of, of physicians who are solo practice physicians or, you know, dual practice physicians. Why is that? Um, I don't know. I, I, I would think because it gives them autonomy. That's Makes that makes sense. sense to me. Yeah, me and too. where else would where else would you want autonomy except someplace where you could go surf or go fish or, you know. So uh, you're currently in private practice. It sounds like you were uh, working with another physician a few years ago. Maybe give us like a thirty thousand foot view of training at Cleveland Clinic, and then a couple of the what bring us to present with regards to your career. Um. So I've like I've had a f- couple jobs. <laughs> like a lot of physicians do. And it was interesting. I wish someone would have told me in the very beginning that like less than 7% of physicians stay at their first job. Um, Because I've always been that kind of all in sort of person, like I'm going to do it, I'm going to go all in and do it. And so when I got my first job, which was like Ivy League, I went all in, bought the house, moved the kids, moved the family. This is my retirement job. First job out of fellowship, I found it. You know, I was in all the way, but then it kind of became clear that like, as much as I loved teaching and I really, really did enjoy all of that. And I'm still in contact with a lot of my fellows that I taught over the years that I was there, which is really nice. Um, the academic political, like the true academic political scene was probably not my scene. <laughs> and um, that's okay. I mean, I'm okay with that. I learned a lot of great things there. I took baking classes at King Arthur Flower. You know, I, <laughs> I learned how to cross country ski. I mean, I had a lot of fun. Um, but I feel like each little point is something you have to look into. Like you can either let it make you better or you can let it make you bitter. And I am always like, make it better. Like whatever the point is, whatever you're going to do, allow, take whatever the good things were with that leave the rest behind and go on to the next thing and become better because of it. And all of the positions and places I've been and the things I've done, I I feel have led me to this point and made me who I am today and made me better because of it. Not only a better physician, but like more compassionate and um, caring to other doctors as well. Um, That's important. Totally. I, I love that idea, better not bitter. It's amazing the difference a vowel makes. Um, where did you pick that up? Um, I just, I just thought of it one day that, that, that I just, I just woke up one day and I decided that that's how I needed to be for like the rest of my life. Yeah. Yeah. So after that experience in academia, where did you go then? Actually, I thought I was just going to do a locums job in the U S Virgin islands and a weekend or two weeks into being there, which was supposed to be a month stint covering for somebody for vacation. And that was a government hospital. And um, I was mostly just doing anesthesia. And this guy was acting weird, like super weird while I was giving him a break. And he was like tying his scrub pants and he kept walking back in and out of the room. And I was like, Ed, so take a break. Like, I'm good. I got it. 
He's like, did I tell you? And I was like, you told me, go take a break. And then he came back in about five minutes later. He's like, do you know my locker combination? I was like, no, I do not know your locker combination. And I was like, are you okay? Do you, do you need some help? Do you want me to get help for you? And, and I'm good. I'm good. So after he came back from his lunch, I was kind of like, do I leave him here? Like what's going on? I knew something was happening and he was older, but I don't know how much older, but like definitely older. And and as you can imagine, I'm, you know, 32, maybe at this point, 33. And I walked the next OR room after I left him there. And I said, uh, I don't know if it's his heart or his head, but something's wrong with Ed. (laughs) And the senior guy who I'm still friends with to this day went over and to kind of assess the situation. And um, they immediately took him actually out of the room and took him down and went to the ER and he got a head scan and um, huge glioblastoma multiform. And he was dead four months later. So that night they're like, would you like to stay here? (laughs) And I had a lot of choices to make and, um, I thought, well, here we go. So I stayed. And that was kind of that part of that journey. Um, I started uh, my first medical business. I started in St. Croix, which was so much red tape. The, everything has to have a rubber stamp. You know, you have to go through all these like things because it's more complicated because it's on an island, but it's also more complicated because it's like considered out of the country, even though it's one of our territories. There's so many different things. Um, so I did a little bit of office-based anesthesia and pain management. Um, it's like an independent kind of contractor for the business that I created there. And that kind of gave me the taste or the entrepreneurial spirit that I know I have hidden in me. I mean, I started a video store when I was like 19. Um, so I've, you know, the VHS kind where you like had to go get the like plastic thing with, with like the MS DOS computer where you had to like on the blue screen type in which number it was to calculate the late fees and everything. Yeah. It was pretty, it was pretty special. Okay. So you're an entrepreneur in the Virgin Islands as a 30 something physician after having a, it's gotta be like a, I mean, that being on the job for a week, having an experience like that with one of your colleagues, that must've been, I I don't know, what did you, how did you process that? I think it was super sad for him. Of course, I had all of the empathy, compassion and and grief around um, the fact that this was happening and happening quickly. but I think it just showed me like life's short. Life is really short. And you like never know when your time's going to be up. And I think because I had kind of a near-death experience when I was like 18, <laughs> that I've always kind of had that in there. But medicine made me kind of like push that down just to put the blinders on and get through. Um, but it's there. Like it's, it's omnipresent in my life. I can't deny it. Well, I've got to ask, what was the near-death experience? Um, so I was driving to finals. I'd come home over the weekend, and it was finals week. And I was driving. I'd been on the turnpike for like four miles. And I had a dog in the car with me. Um, 
and it had doggy seatbelt on and it must have been barking or it wanted something because on the police report, which I later went back and read and I read the microfish and all of the um, uh, medical records later once I was further along in medicine, um, I must have like grabbed the wheel as I reached for something and just being 18 and not cognizant of that kind of stuff when you drive. I ramped 70 miles an hour up one of those guardrails that go down into the ground. The car flipped. I was blown, thrown from the car. Um, I broke all the bones in the left side of my face, both my wrists, a lot of my fingers. Um, I was life flighted to Metro where I was in a coma for four days. And yeah, so I know the patient perspective pretty well. And um, it's like being a prisoner. <laughs> and uh and and the people that take care of you and save your lives are awesome but like there's there's this confining feeling so i think from the very onset of of my medical training i always had that feeling of um understanding like what it feels like to be in an icu to have a endotracheal tube taken out or a ng tube taken out tastes kind of nasty or you know just going through the process of um feeling not heard and not listened to um as an 18 year old i decided when i was on the head trauma rehabilitation floor that i was going to sign myself out ama because i didn't like my roommate who was clearly brain damaged and like wedding and you know um smelling during the night from her you know on not under her control but at the time as an 18 year old i was like this is ridiculous I just have casts on my hands. I want out of here. I'm not staying here. I'm signing myself out AMA. So I had like the, the whole conglomerate of the group that was like rounding on me. And I met with them at this big long table. And I just remember telling them, I'm leaving. I'm leaving tomorrow. Like, you do not have a choice. I'm out of here. <laughs> and because what they knew, they knew that that meant like all my insurances wouldn't pay and like all this other stuff, because of course, as an 18 year old, I just wanted out. They talked me into staying through the weekend until Monday so that they could discharge me appropriately. Yeah. So I was discharged on April Fool's Day and this is 1995. And I went home and within 24 hours of being home, I was internally suffocating. And um, I had developed tracheal stenosis in Malaysia and it had been undiagnosed while I was in the hospital. Although my mom did tell several doctors that it sounded like my voice was changing and that she felt like um, I was whistling when I talked, but they would always listen to my lungs. So clearly it was up here. And um, lo and behold, I ended up having to be flown to Mass General Hospital and had a tracheal resection and my chin sewn to my chest for 10 days. And uh, Dr. Matisson was kind enough to save my life in that fashion. So I've got many lifesavers out there. Yeah. Was that the time that you decided you wanted to be a physician? Or was it before that? No, I've, I wanted to be a doctor since I was like four. So each little thing along my path, I think just kind of further cemented that. Yeah. A word that I've heard you mention a lot is empathy. And it's clear from your experiences that um, you have some, you have a bank from which to draw and to empathize with patients in pain and experiencing other medical you know, situations. So how has your, 
how would you say your clinical practice or just your mindset is distinct or has been informed by some of these things you've been through? Um, I think I just really try to listen and hear what the patients are saying and, and what they need and what they want. So trying to get the same game plan with them. Um, what are their goals? Make sure their goals are realistic. Um, I am fortunate enough here in Kauai that the guy down the hall is an acupuncturist and he's called pain-free Kauai. So I can tell my patients, listen, here's the goals. We're going to try to reduce your pain by 50%. We're going to do whatever we can do. We want the quality of life to be better. Um, and, and there's uh, ultimately there's some people that'll say, but I want you to take care of all my pain. I want to be pain-free. And I say, I'm sorry, the pain-free clinics down the hall. <laughs> so this is about restoring function. This is about treating the source of your pain. Cause I think a lot of people, they're just have so much gratitude about having someone who wants to find the source of their pain. Everybody else up until this point has just wanted to cover it up. Yeah, I had a, I, I distinctly remember I, I had a, a back issue that I've actually talked about before on the show. I had a slightly compressed disc. Um, and I went to my primary care doc. He was busy all day, couldn't get in, but there was like one slot for one of the other physicians in the practice. And I distinctly remember sitting down and having a conversation with this physician whom I had never met. And she was just so like intentional. And like, I would say like, oh, my back hurts, yada, yada. She's like, no, wait, like stop, back up, explain like this, what happened, when did the, and I just felt through the thoroughness and through her, it was, it was, I think, empathy and her, her diligence. Um, and then she explained the whole pro like, you're going to need to get MRI. You're going to need to get an X-ray first, even though we both know you need the MRI, like that's how they do it. Like this is what, and I just remember coming away from that thinking like, wow, that's, I was, you know, for a physician who might have never met to experience in that moment for me, it was a, it was a time of real vulnerability. And I was about to be leaving the state for like a month. We were flying out West to visit my wife's family. It was right after my son was born. She was on maternity leave and all these factors made it like time crunched. I got to like get an MRI in the next two days and I got to get the prior auth first. And it was, it was a mess. And they, she really, uh, was an advocate for me, a stranger in a way that I, I still like really remember and appreciate. So that's awesome. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So anybody who's listening name? out there, like her, uh, Dr. Bell from uh, Dr. Radner family practice, she yeah. probably has no reason to listen to this podcast, but I might send it to her and say, thanks. I mean, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, shout out to Dr. Bell for helping right. you out. Right. And yeah. I think that that's pretty much what we do um, as pain physicians is we are patient advocates. We coordinate a lot of care between other physicians. We try to help them along the kind of crazy pathways that they have to deal with, with uh, just insurance programming and um, I'm getting the prior off and like helping them navigate it because it's not really clear to a lot of people. And um I mean, as a, as a solo practitioner, having people come in and be angry about their co-pays or angry about what they're, I'm like, I'm not, I didn't pick your insurance plan. Like, I don't know what to tell you, you know what I mean? But instead of like talking to them in that way, I explained to them, like, listen, I can't possibly remember that HMSA has like 80 different plans and which each plan does. Like, that's really kind of where you're you have to take some accountability to, to look at your plan and try to understand what they're willing to reimburse. And if they're willing to reimburse more, we'll, we'll work with them. No problem. 
Um, but a lot of that stuff gets really complicated. And I think the older the patients are having to go online and having to do all of that. I mean, it's really hard to convert to telemedicine during the close down because so many people here, uh, you know, if they live in Wainiha and they don't have good internet service and they're like, I'm just going to drive on my car and talk to you on FaceTime. I'm like, don't, don't call me on FaceTime while you're driving. <laughs> like, Stop. <laughs> So, I mean, it was really interesting converting to telemedicine over here. Yeah. Um, what was your, so at what point did you leave the Virgin Islands? How long were you there? Um, about two years. Um, yeah. I also, there's one experience you mentioned earlier on, uh, the, the travel and the bucket list. And I think this was during residency. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about how you became like a world traveler kind of Okay, so I'm going to just like throw it out there like uh, Dr. Cristiano Quintini like told me like I needed to travel like he, he came to the Cleveland Clinic from Italy and like joined the liver transplant um, team as a fellow, I believe. Maybe he went to Miami first and then came to the Cleveland Clinic, but there was like something like he just left Italy at, to, to be like a liver transplant fellow and restart his life in a new country and all this other stuff. So just having worked with him throughout residency, he couldn't believe that I had never been to Europe. And I got a journal, a Smithsonian journal, and it was like the 28 places to see before you die, which seemed way more doable than like the thousand and one or whatever that book's called. So um, I was looking through the 28 and I had only been to one and I was like, oh no. And this is like 2008. So I'm like a CA3. I'm like at the end of residency. And one of the 28 places was Falling Water, which is in Pennsylvania. So of course I was in Cleveland area, not far from there. Um, I was like, that's it. We're going this weekend. I have a golden weekend. We're packing up the family. We're going to Falling Water. I got to start knocking off these 28. And, um, and then I planned a trip with the family and we went to like five countries in Europe and did like a European family cruise. It was a little bit like European family vacation, but um, when you take three teenagers to Europe, all that stuff can happen. So uh, no, but like it did, it definitely, once I got out and saw more cultures and got around to seeing different countries and stuff, I mean, it really does open your worldview. Um, so much so that after visiting like 38 countries now, I would consider myself more of a citizen of the world than anything else because I'm, I'm very compassionate to the cultural differences and the things that go on in different countries that we're quite blessed in the United States of America to have all the things we have at our disposal and, and often probably taken for granted. Um, so maybe it was in Myanmar when the little kid was running behind me with like different countries, dollar bills and like a monsoon. And like, um, I had read something before I went there that they really like it if you give them like us dollars. So I gave him like a couple $1 bills and he was like super excited. <laughs> so it's just, it's like a whole different feel when you're exposed to many different cultures and, and like the things that they went through the perseverance for these different subsets um, um, around the world, because they've had to have a lot of perseverance and kind of stamina to do the things that they've done. Yeah, perseverance is another word I know that you have mentioned a few times. And, uh, you know, through that crazy experience when you almost died to, you know, making it through training with kids, like 
during med school and then getting through residency and fellowship and just the demands of a physician career. And I know you mentioned when we spoke recently, just a couple of times and you're like, you know, you're in the OR and you're just like so frustrated or whatever. And you're talking to one of your mentors about just trying to like, please talk me into still being a doctor because I'm about to lose it kind of thing. Um, tell me about what it means to you to like have that grit or the perseverance or the, the idea that you're going to see something through. How has that played out for you? Um, I think there's been a lot of naysayers as well, too, like that kind of like fueled some of my fire. Um, like, oh, you, you can't do that. Like there was some physician when I was in clinicals in med school. I remember her saying something to the effect of your you should be barefoot and pregnant in a trailer park. And I was like, what? I can't believe. First of all, I couldn't believe she just said that to me. I was already in medical school. And I was just kind of like floored, right? And I think I thought to myself, no, mm -mm, that's not my, that's not my path. Like, but good for you for thinking that way. And everybody's entitled to their opinion, but um, it doesn't mean I have to go along with their opinion. (laughs) Did that motivate you? Oh yeah, definitely. I would be so amped if somebody, you know, said something like that to me. Yeah, like currently the um, child status in, is one and done. Um, but um, I, I've had stepkids, but yeah, the, I only have the one biological daughter and uh, never lived in a trailer park. So, and I'm not always barefoot in Hawaii. I wear slippers, you know, the lip flip flops, whatever. Um, tell us a little bit about, to the extent that you're, comfortable talking about it because I'm sure it's a small island. Uh, you know, the prior experience you had, uh, I know there's a lot of physicians who are trying to find a clinical opportunity where perhaps there's a partnership opportunity, a place where they can express their own, you know, clinical and personal selves uh, in the way they care for patients and the way that they build out their uh, professional lives. And I'm sure that that's what you were looking to do and expecting when you joined the last practice. And at some point you decided it was better to move on. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. I, um, I really do think that like the big motivator, not just being told that I couldn't start a practice and then like having to do it, but like the motivator was more about transparency, um, honesty, clarity, and showing the physicians that you can do this. You can have a life that you've always dreamed of and you can have, um, success that may not to some physicians be like the super duper high and affluent monetary success that you really thought you should have, perhaps, I don't know, but like success can be defined by everybody in a different way. And, um, and having a successful pain practice and having the freedom and the autonomy to make your schedule to, um, run the practice the way you want to and have, you know, of course you have all of the compliance and stuff that you have to follow, but in general, you're given a lot of freedom to make those decisions. And, you know, if you've ever read rich dad, poor dad, he says you pay twice once is for security and the second time's for freedom. So if I paid twice, once was med school and residency to be the physician for security. And then the second part was for the freedom with being an entrepreneur. And um, most of all of my friends who have now ventured out into having their own practices as well, I mean, they kind of speak the same 
um, story is that they, they don't think that they could manage having to work for somebody again because now they've gotten so used to being able to design things the way that they want to do them what works best for them how how they can kind of just make medicine better and so for me starting to practice my vision I guess was that not only to make medicine better but like show people that they can do it and they can have that clarity and not have to feel like they're going to somehow be duped or not given the reality of the situation um, and really kind of be excited about being entrepreneurial and, and that this becomes like their baby too. Now, whether that means like a partnership or, or, you know, um, bringing other people in to show them that they can do it. um, I'm not sure exactly what that means right now, but um, that was my vision. Awesome. Are there, have there been people for you? And I'm sure there have, um, Anyone who has, you know, maybe the opposite effect of that other physician you just mentioned, people who have empowered you, lifted you up and equipped you to say like, yes, I can, even though I don't even know the way to get there from here, I have what it takes to be able to be an independent pain practitioner one day. Um, yeah, I, and I do think that there's a lot of people that um, have inspired that and and kind of helped me to remember who I am, if you will. Um, and so, and one of my greatest like we were talking about earlier I think mentorship versus sponsorship and so like mentorship is somebody who helps you along and then sponsorship is like somebody who can actually help you get somewhere that you might not have otherwise been able to get to and so this person throughout 18 years may have changed from being like more of a mentor to a sponsor or whatever but he's always been in my corner have my back rooting for me and so um just a shout out to dr mark popovich who i met at the cleveland clinic when he was the head of the icu and now is the chair at university hospitals in cleveland ohio so he has always kind of like said you can do it you can do it and uh even if it was like no i can't i can't <laughs> it's like, you know yeah. yes you can yeah oh that's so, so... that's good it's so critical and being surrounded by that right person. I've experienced that so many times and uh, it's invaluable. Yeah. And uh, being being uh, surrounded by people like that or putting yourself in the way of people like that, it's so important. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. it's also really fun to have the opportunity to you know be that person for others yeah. as you gain experience and can open doors. That's like part of like the growing up in medicine or like a lot of people say like, oh, you're married to medicine. Well, I mean, if that's how you want to look at it, maybe, but I I think it also gives you the opportunity to learn how others, you know, manifest what they want and, and, and also support them. Like where it can now be like a joint venture where it's like, oh, you've been supporting me, but let me support you because this, you got this, like, you know, keep doing what you're doing. And, um, other people just kind of like coming along into your path and saying, you know, you should really be a pain doctor. And you're like, really? Yeah. Yeah. You should apply. And, um, you know, that's kind of how Dr. Nagy McHale was when I was rotating through the pain department and I wasn't really sure I knew I wanted to do a fellowship, but I was kind of thinking I see you. Those guys were really smart. And I thought, you know, I should probably learn more about electrolytes and like stuff like that. <laughs> seemed like it would be a valuable year, you know? And then, uh, he just kind of approached me and said, I should apply for pain that, um, I had 
good surgical hands and I, you know, I was good at procedures and it seemed like something that he thought I would do really well in. And that year was pretty competitive. So I remember just kind of thinking, nah, I don't like competition. I don't like rejection. I'm good. I, I already got this ICU spot. I'll just stay over there where it's comfy. And he was like, no, no, you should apply. You should apply. And so I did. And, uh, the rest was kind of history from there. So, but, but I think that's a, the beauty of pain management being such a new field and like having all these cool new things that we're learning and we're able to do and we're able to like um, really kind of like keep our wheelhouse open and, and do more. So um, like do a podcast with you or create another venture or like, you know, maybe write a book or, you know, just the ability to be able to do other things um, is part of that freedom. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've actually really enjoyed it. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, I want to wrap it up here. And I thank you for your time today, Dr. Sparks. Um, you are somebody who's, you know, not only very professionally accomplished, but you've had these experiences that have left a significant impact. Uh, and I think have changed the way that you see the world and the way that you treat patients. So in closing, I'd love to just have you reflect on a time uh, of professional actualization where the perseverance and the grit and the empathy and the seeing perhaps a it could have been worth a patient or it could have been something else that you've been working towards for a long time, a moment where you said, you know what, like, <laughs> thanks to the haters, like in this moment, I did it. I've achieved the goal. I've, I've reached that success that I was striving for and you were able to enjoy that. Can you think of anything like that? Well, I think that there's been a, a ton of those experiences sprinkled like throughout all of, of my training. And I think I was just talking to someone in relation to like, do you miss anesthesia? I'm like, sometimes like, yeah, I kind of miss doing anesthesia. Um, so one of the things was being in like a big liver transplant, like having all these things going on and, um, the, the attending calling as he's like walking out, you know, of the hospital, I would assume, you know, like the case is over, we're taking him to the ICU. He's like, you did a great job, blah, blah, blah. And so it was one of those moments, I think in residency, like, oh, I can do this. Like I'm doing this, this is me. And I, when you're about to finish residency and you have kind of that imposter syndrome and you're like, ah, I don't know, like that's, that was really cool. And there was a lot of things like that, like walking across the stage when graduating med school and hearing them call you doctor for the first time, you know, even though you had been like working hard to get there, that was pretty cool. Um, you know, in residency, uh, for our residency slideshow, I made a really cool like slideshow uh, to music, which they played during the graduation at residency was, was just kind of reminiscent of all of the things we had all been through together and how kind of like tight knit your band of brothers kind of becomes when you're going through residency. Um, so all these people along the way, you know, have sprinkled all of these things. Uh, the first time I opened my practice here, just like thinking like, I'm doing it. Like it's happening. Like, I don't know how it really happened, but like, I've got like this EHR and I've got like employees and I got this like, you know, logo on the wall and, you know, people are showing up. So. <laughs> oh, that's, uh, that's amazing. And, uh, it's been really fun. Dr. Sparks hearing your story. Thank you for joining us today on APM success. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Justin. Have a great day. Aloha. 
If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.